following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. In Exodus chapter 14, taking a scenic route, um, I'll explain a little bit why, why we're calling it a scenic route. Um, read the passage first from Exodus 14, uh, starting at verse 15 through verse 31, if you want to follow along as I read. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's forces, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch the and in the morning watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel. For the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Uh, We looked last week at the kind of lead up to this uh, very climactic and and glorious miracle in the book of Exodus, um, really one of God's most incredible acts of saving. Uh, And we saw last week that uh, it's, this account starts off by uh, God 
telling Moses to not take them the shortest route. In fact, they were to leave. So God led them by the way, not by the way of the land of the Philistines, the short and direct route, uh, because that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. And God realized that they were not yet ready to go into battle. They needed to develop their military muscle. And even though they walked out ranked in, in order as soldiers, as an army, they were not ready to face an enemy. Uh, but what they need is not, not to learn so much the skill of battle, how to wield a sword or how to uh, implement military strategy. What they needed was to learn to trust God. God would be the one who would fight their battles, not only against Egypt, but in Canaan as well. And so God takes them on a very scenic route, meaning uh, he takes them through the wilderness, he takes them to the Red Sea and to Mount Sinai, because he wants them to get a vision to see the panorama of his mighty power, what God can do to rescue and deliver and save them. Um, And so this is really about God building up their faith, Uh, taking this people who really had not known him well and grounding them in a confidence in what God could and would do for them. Uh, As Christians, uh, we also are in a battle. Uh, Only the, the enemy that we face is much more perilous and dangerous than just the Egyptians and their chariots. Um, Colossians tells us that we've been delivered from the domain of darkness that's Satan's kingdom and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son Uh, very much exactly like what happened to Israel they were taken out of the kingdom of Egypt and they were put into uh, a kingdom that God was going to be king over Uh, but just like the Israelites Satan is not happy about this Uh, he's seen people who have come to Christ leaving his control and his power and his kingdom, and he chases after us. He would love nothing more than to grab us back and drag us back under his tyranny and his bondage. So Ephesians 6.12 says this, For we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And uh, you can't escape this. If you say, well, I'm just not going to be a Christian, you can't escape this battle, right? If you're not a believer, you're, you're already a prisoner and held captive in that kingdom of darkness. To come to Jesus and to escape that kingdom, to be transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son, simply means that now you have a fierce and terrible enemy who is hunting you down. I think too often we take uh, far too lightly... Uh, the reality of the spiritual battle that we're engaged in. Uh, the people that are irritating you, the things in your life that are driving you crazy, right? Um, really, they're not the enemy. Right? As much as you would like to make them the enemy, right? certain political leaders ruining the world are not the enemy. Right? The enemy is Satan. Right? We are in a spiritual battle. It's the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places that we must worry about. Um, and it's an enemy that is far more powerful and far more destructive than anything Pharaoh had at his disposal. And so uh, 
This is relevant for us. We need to also learn how to have our faith muscles built up so that we can fight the spiritual battles that we will and are engaged in. So that we can be a church before whom the gates of hell cannot prevail. And so that we can appropriate and walk in the victory that God has already appropriated for us. But to do that, we need to also increase our faith. And so like Israel, maybe sometimes we need to take the scenic route. right? And the scenic route means uh, the route full of trouble and difficulty and trials. So that God can teach us and show us how he can move and work and save. And that's exactly what he's doing here with Israel at the Red Sea. And, and this, if you've ever gone on a, you know, a vacation and you take the scenic route and, and when you, you have time and you stop at those scenic overlooks, right? And you like those, you pull off and you walk out and there's this beautiful vista before you, right? Well, this is, this is a very impressive scenic overlook, the Red Sea, because they are going to see God's power at work in an incredible way. So let's, let's see how we can build up our faith. Um, first thing it talks about is uh, really God's purpose. So his purpose is certainly to build up the faith of Israel. But he also has other purposes. It says in verse 17, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. Uh, this phrase, specifically this phrase, Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen, is used repeatedly in chapters 13 through 14. And it's interesting because in all the plagues, this was never mentioned. In the plagues, certainly God got glory. But in, in the plagues in Egypt, God gets glory over not so much Pharaoh as the gods of Egypt. It says that God does all this in order, order to judge the gods of Egypt. And most of what happens in the plagues is God demonstrating that he alone is the true and living God. That all the gods that the Egyptians trusted in, the sun god and the god of Egypt and the god of the rain and the clouds and the frogs and the flies, were not real gods at all. They were false gods. And in fact, God himself, Yahweh, the great I Am, was the one who, uh, who was in control. So, um, so that was the battle in Egypt. But this is a different kind of battle, right? Right. Uh, this is not uh, a battle against false gods and bad theology. Okay, the Egyptian army is coming. They're coming in chariots. They're coming on horses. They are armed. They have shields. They have real swords and real bows and arrows and real spears with, like, sharp points. Right? Um, this is a real enemy. Um, it's a real force that is a threat, an actual real threat to Israel. And the reality is we know, we know that the false gods of Egypt were never a threat to Israel because they were false. They were not real. Uh, they were imaginary. These chariots are not imaginary. These swords are not pretend. This is not just a drill. These are real soldiers armed to the teeth. Uh, it says that... Uh, Pharaoh set out with 600 chariots, plus his horsemen, plus his, his soldiers. We don't know what the size of the force was, but it was an intimidating, impressive military combat unit. Um, the typical Egyptian war chariot carried three people. One guy drove, the other two soldiers stood on the sides with shields and spears and swords and arrows, depending on what they were doing. And they were fast. 
Right? They were driven by fast horses that could easily run down an opponent. Um, and just imagine, just imagine you're on foot. The Israelites don't even have weapons, right? You're on foot, and here comes this chariot charging you down. Right? You can't run away. You can't fight. These horses were trained to trample you to death. Right? It's like Ben-Hur, the spiky things on the wheels. I mean, it was, you know, it was an impressive sight. Um, a lot like, you know, today a, a, a foot soldier with a gun going up against the tank. No match. Right? It was no match. And certainly that's the way it was. Here's these uh, well-armed soldiers versus an, un- an army of unarmed brick makers and shepherds. Right? This was a real threat. But it says in verse 17 that God says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and his hosts and his chariots and his horses. Uh, the idea here is that God is going to gain the honor of conquest. God is going to demonstrate clearly that real military power is no match for him. In fact, in this, in this era, Egypt was the world dominant force. This was the greatest, most powerful military in the world at that time. And God is going to get glory over by showing that it is no match for him. He is going to show the extent of his power and how effective he is in battle. Um, and the reason, another reason he says is so that, so that they will know, so the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Uh, God does this not only to rescue and deliver Israel, but he's a God who wants to reveal himself. And he wants all men to know and worship him. And that was true for the Egyptians. So while it is a judgment on Egypt, uh, he, he loves the people of Egypt. He wants them to know who he is and to one day worship him. So it is an act of great revelation. Um, <clears throat> so that's his goal. That's, that's a lot, part of what he's doing in addition to, as we will see, uh, building up the faith of Israel. Um, but it's important to really understand what happens here, uh, to, to get the full impact of what's going on here, to realize that God is engaging in a, in a war. It is a battle. In fact, in, in uh, the next chapter, in the, in the Song of Moses that celebrates this battle, he calls God a man of war. Is that your vision of God? You get up in the morning and say, oh God, man of war. <laughs> Uh, it's usually not how we think about God, uh, but it is, especially in the Old Testament, a very real and accurate de- portrayal of who God is. God is a God of battle. He is a God of war. Um, and so what I want to do is I want to look through uh, what God does uh, to Egypt in the Red Sea. And, of course, we know the details of the story, but I want to look at them through the lens of, of somebody in the military, this is dangerous for me because I never was in the military. Uh, I've never seen combat. I, I've read stories, you know, but that's about the extent of it. Uh, so it's a little dangerous for me to do this, but uh, I'm going to try. Ted or some of you who have more military experience could do this much better than I. But it's, it's important to see that what, what God does here is, is military. It is a battle. And God himself is indeed fighting a real military battle. So what I, what I want to do is, is we look at this, uh, we look at it through a, a military lens. And what's, what's interesting is, uh, if God wanted to, as, as, as uh, 
Pharaoh was charging across the desert in pursuit of them, God could have just rained down fire on them. Right? He could have done this uh, much simpler. But God chooses to not go that route. He, cho- he chooses, in fact, to engage the enemy in combat. Uh, and he lets uh, Pharaoh uh, pursue Israel almost to the last second. Right? It gets really close as the climax of this builds. So we're going to look at this through a military lens and help do this since I have no, no uh, Army experience. I got out the U.S. Army Field Manual version 3.0, right? And in that, I, I did, honestly. And, and in that, it gives basic military strategy. So every soldier kind of knows when he's told to do white why they're doing it. And there's, there's basically eight pieces of critical military strategy that armies use to win wars. Now, I'm not going to use all eight, but I'm going to use about seven of them, actually. So let's see what God's, how God's military genius matches up to U.S. military or whatever other military you can pick. I'm sure they all have the same strategy. Um, first one, first piece of military strategy is what they call unity of command. Unity of command. It basically means only one guy gets to be in charge, right? You can't have lots of generals running around giving conflicting orders. For every objective, you must ensure unity of effort under one responsible commander. Um, So who's in charge of Israel's army? Pretty easy, God's in charge, isn't he? God's in charge. Um, Says the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Uh, Referring back not so much to Moses, but to the crying and complaining of Israel, who were not acting in faith. He says, tell the people to march forward. Right? They, are, they are up against the Red Sea, but they are facing the Red Sea. And if you remember, they are led by the pillar of cloud, and the cloud is leading them toward the sea. And he says, get up, pack your bags, start marching off into the sea. And he tells Moses, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, so that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. <clears throat> so God's calling the shots here. He is in command. He alone is giving orders. A great lesson for us as the church If we will be effective in combating Satan, we must be a church who possesses unity. Uh, Our unity is vital for victory, for success, right? We have to be a body of Christ who is united together. And that can only be achieved if we all have one commander. We will not achieve unity by simply trying harder to cooperate. Because honestly... I'm not that cooperative, really. And apparently most of you aren't either. It's not our human nature. Uh, We're not going to achieve unity by just trying to get along, by trying to like each other, or trying to... No, we need... We will achieve unity, pure and simple, when we all follow the same leader. When we all submit and follow Christ. When he is the one truly commanding his army. When we as his body yield and submit to him and take our orders from him. Um, that's the first thing. Second thing, simplicity. Uh, the strategy of simplicity. Uh, it's stated in the manual, prepare clear, uncomplicated plans and clear, concise orders to ensure thorough understanding. Well, I'm telling you, this does not get much easier than this. Right? God's plans here are pretty simple. It's simply this. Lift up, step one, lift up your staff. Step two, stretch out your hand over the sea so that it will be divided. Step three, march. Okay, 
That's it, right? That's the whole battle plan right there as far as Israel's concerned. Uh, the other side of it, he says, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so they are going to go in after you, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. It is an extremely simple plan. You just walk. I'm just going to part the piece of cake. Part the waters of the Red Sea. You're going to walk through the Red Sea. Egypt's going to follow you. Bam, we win. Simple, clear. Uh, there was no confusion. Um, and it was very clear as well what his objectives were. Uh, military tra- strategists apparently have two ways to win a war. Well, actually, there's more, but two simple ways, right? Uh, and, and it's important to know your objective before you go in because it depends on how you fight the battle. One is to win by uh, what's called a war of attrition. Right? And this would be in the case where you're pretty sure you're not going to overwhelm the enemy. When the, when the enemy seems a, a sizable match. And so your goal is to not beat them all at once, but to slowly wear away at their defenses, slowly wear away at their resources, dwindle down the size of their army, wear them out. A war of attrition, where you, where you gradually erode their power and they, they give up, they surrender. The other way to win is by complete annihilation. Okay? Uh, and up until just recent history, this was how, what most kings wanted to do. You would go out and try to seek a, uh, an, a strategy which seeks the immediate destruction of the combat power of the enemy's forces. In other words, in one battle, you just destroy them. Okay, now you know the story. Which objective is God after here? Attrition, annihilation. Plan B, annihilation, right? Uh, it's one battle, and it's going to be a decisive victory. God is out to destroy, to wipe out the army of Egypt. <clears throat> Third strategy, always be on the offensive. Okay, play defense, not offense. I mean, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. Play offense, not defense. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so what does that mean? Uh, uh, being on the offensive means to seize, retain, and exploit the initiative. Uh, uh, this is best illustrated really in sports terms, right? In sports, um, you, you play the other team, and there's offense and there's defense. And in sports, it's really handy because, especially if it's a sport involving a ball, it's, it's easy to tell who's on offense and who's on defense, right? The person with the ball is on offense, right? If, you're, if you have the ball, you're on offense, and uh, you, are, you are advancing the initiative. In other words, you are pursuing the goal of getting the ball into your opponent's goal, whatever that is, right? But soccer, you're trying to get into the soccer goal. And it forces the other team to play defense, right? They have to protect their goal. And what that means is that when you have the ball, you really control the action. You control the play. You call the shots. As long as you have the, the ball, you're really controlling the action, and you're forcing the other team to react to what you're doing. And that's always the position you want to be in, in, in military, apparently, in a battle. Uh, You want to control the action, and you want to force the other team to be scrambling, to be trying to prevent you from reaching your goal. Uh, Of course, now, in real war, uh, they don't actually play with the ball. Maybe they should. (laughs) It would work better. I don't know. Um, 
So in a, in, a, in a real war, in a real battle, maybe it's a little harder to tell who's offense and who's defense. But the, the principle is there. The offensive is the person who's really controlling the action and forcing the other into a defensive mode, into being protective. Um, excuse me. So uh, the question here, is, as you look at Exodus, the Red Sea, is God being offensive or defensive? What is it? Is he playing offense or defense? Well, at first appearance, it would appear that it's a very defensive game, right? Israel does not look like they're attacking anybody, right? They've been trapped up against the Red Sea. It is Pharaoh who's pursuing Israel. And it looks very much uh, on the surface as if uh, God is playing the defensive game. Really bad strategy. Okay, somebody's got to tell him, you've got to get out there, you know, get the ball back, get on the offensive. However, if you look a little more deeply in the story, it's clear that God is actually on the offense from the very beginning. If you go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 14 and verse 2, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and camp in front of Pihiroth, uh, Pih- between Migdal and the sea. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. They're lost and confused. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Who's in control here? God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them. Why? Because I ordained it. Because this is what I want him to do. I want him to be pursuing Israel. In military military terms, this is called rapid, decisive operations, which means compelling the adversary to undertake certain actions to your advantage. See, God set this up from all along. From the very beginning, it is God who is in control. Later on in verse 21, it says, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, waters being a wall to them on the right and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued them and went after them. Um, this really is a miracle. And, and, and we have to take a short sidebar here and talk about what God does here because uh, there are many theologians and, and scholars and people who, who don't really want to believe in miracles who have tried to make this much less of a miracle than it really is. What happened at the Red Sea? Well, we we don't know the exact location where this was. There's lots of possibilities. But there are some things in the story that we we know absolutely are true. First of all, it was a huge body body of water, and they were located somewhere in the middle of the body of water, not at, at one end or the other. The reason we know that is when the Egyptians came, they couldn't just escape by going around this lake or this body of water. Right? They were cut off. It was big enough that, that they were cut off from forward access. So it's a huge body of water, at least you know, 10, 15 miles at length, and they're in the middle of it. Um, secondly, it was a fair distance across, probably several miles. Thirdly, this water, this lake, wherever they cross, is deep enough to drown an entire army. Right? And there's liberal theologians who will say, or people, whatever, who say, well, you know, it was, 
It was just this shallow marsh, and the wind, you know, pushed the sea and kind of dried it out enough that they could go across. And, and then, but, but that creates a whole other different kind of miracle when God drowned the army of, in, of Israel in two inches of water, right? Um, it, it was a deep lake, a deep body of water. Uh, and we know that because it says that God made a wall on each side. Okay, so the water is piled up into a wall of water. The word that's used there for wall is a unique word in Hebrew but it's not the word for a generic wall of a house or wall of a garden. All through, every, every instance throughout the Old Testament, this word describes the high wall of a city. Okay, the average height of most city walls would have been 20 to 30 feet high, right? 10 to 15 meters. Right? This wasn't just a low wall. So imagine what it's describing. It says the wall is piled up, the water is piled up into this 20 to 30 foot wall or higher on each side. Um, it says this is done by an east wind. Um, th- this is no east wind I've, I've ever seen. Right? And Moses, in describing what he experienced, he says it was a wind. This is not just a breeze. This is, this is not even a hurricane. The, wind, the force of wind it would take to actually do that would have blown the Israelites back to Egypt. Right? All right, so we don't know what it was, but it was supernatural. Okay, the wind did not cause this. It may have been perceived and experienced as some kind of wind. It was supernatural. What God does here is an incredible miracle. Um, now, so, so get the picture here. This is the picture, and this is why it's important to see this, uh, that God's in control and he's on the offensive. Okay, God parts the waters of this massive body of water so that the Israelites can go through on, on dry, actually solid ground is probably a better way to describe it, it's not that it was bone dry, but it was solid ground versus wading through a swamp or through knee-deep water. It was solid ground. Um, and and uh, so they're going through, and Pharaoh sees this, and, and Pharaoh, he's so bought into the trap that God has set for him, he pursues them into this lake. Now, who would do that, right? Imagine you're driving your brand new pickup truck you just bought, right? You paid a lot of money for it. And you see the sea open up before and you think, hey, that's kind of cool. I think I'll just drive right into that. No! No, you don't do that, right? Uh, but God draws Pharaoh in. It says, in, and we'll see this next week, that his greed, his lust for, for Israel was so great that it drew him in. God sucked him in. God hardened his heart. God compelled him to go in. Right? So I ask again, who's playing offense and who's playing defense? Who's controlling the action? Right? God is controlling the action. Every step of the way from beginning to end, God is in control. God is on the offensive. But he's done it with absolute genius. Because while he is in control and he's in the offensive position, he's, he's tricked Pharaoh, he's fooled Pharaoh into thinking He's in control. He's on the offensive. And that he's pursuing a helpless, defenseless army. But God's in control. <clears throat> Next one. Uh, security. Okay, while it's important to be offensive, uh, you want to be offensive in a way that's not too careless. Right? You, have to, you have to protect yourself. Security means never permitting the enemy to acquire an unexpected advantage. 
Um, all the while God is orchestrating this, he is very careful to protect Israel. Right? He, he, he watches over them. So in verse 19 it says that the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel in the, in the pillar of cloud, right? He, he went and moved the pillar behind them and stood behind them. So the angel of the Lord and the pillar are the same thing. It is this visible manifestation of God's presence with them. It is God himself who is leading them. It is God who protects them. So he moves from in front of them by the sea and he comes around behind them and he forms a barrier so that as, as, Egypt, as the Egyptian army is approaching, right, there's a wall they can't cross. And apparently the way it's pictured here is that it's, it's as night is falling, the, the chariots and horsemen of, of, of Pharaoh are charging up, about to overtake Israel. And they know they're trapped up against the Red Sea. And as the sun's setting, as darkness falls... This cloud moves and, and stations God stations himself between Israel and Egypt and he protects them. And for that night, Egypt is stopped from laying a single finger on Israel. So God protects them. Uh, he is not careless in executing his plan. The next thing, and this is really the most brilliant of all, is the strategy of maneuver. What does it mean to maneuver? Well, it means that you place the enemy in a disadvantageous position. Right? It means that you maneuver the enemy and you put them in a place where they're least able to, to fight back, where their, where their strengths are minimized. And there's lots of ways to do this. One is a boxing maneuver where you box in a, a force and attack them at all sides. This looks a lot like being boxed in, right? Uh, another way is what they call a choke point where you use strategic geography, uh, meaning like a canyon, right, a narrow uh, channel, or in this case, a divided ocean. That works. Um, intended to concentrate the enemy into a confined area where the defender can maximize his forces. Well, God brilliantly maneuvers Pharaoh right where he wants him. Right? He draws Pharaoh into the midst of this sea, maneuvers him into a place uh, where his strengths are neutralized. What was the strength of Egypt? Well, it was his chariot. That's what gave uh, Egypt its military force. And in that day, a chariot was, was like an F-16 in, in modern warfare, right? It was, an, it was the weapon. But a, a chariot had to be used on a place that had hard ground and wide open spaces. Um, I haven't been at the bottom of very many lakes um, that I remember. Uh, but I'm thinking the bottom of a lake is not wide open spaces and is not hard ground. And in fact, it says that's exactly what happened. It says the Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord and the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptians into panic clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them and against the Egyptians. Uh, the, the, the Hebrew describes the clogging of their chariot wheels so they drove heavily. is kind of cumbersome Hebrew. We don't know exactly what it means. But it sounds a lot like they needed four-wheel drive. Right? Their narrow, thin chariot wheels and their heavy chariots got down into the sand and the, the kind of muddy soil at the bottom of the lake and they got stuck 
That they bogged down. They drove heavily. They didn't have the advantage of speed anymore. Their chariots wouldn't get through the, the soil well. We don't know exactly what happened, but whatever it was, this was not the strategic place to have a chariot, right? They were in the wrong place. God had brilliantly maneuvered them in a place where their weapons were of no value. And they knew it. And they knew that God was fighting against them. And so they decide it's time to retreat. But they can't, right? Their chariots are stuck. Uh, they are mired down. Last, last piece of strategy. Um, surprise. <laughs> or we could say, surprise! <laughs> surprise! Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, meaning they're, they're retreating, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh, that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. Annihilation. Right? Game over. God wins. God wins. In one decisive, overwhelming victory, God eliminates forever, well, not forever, but for, as far as the history right then, the army of Egypt is gone. They will never be again a threat while they're traveling across the wilderness. Um, so the point is, God, God displays incredible military genius and incomparable power to execute his plan. Right? Um, a plan um, <clears throat> that as we look at it really has two interesting ways it foreshadows the cross. Two things in this that uh, really look to God's genius in beating an impossible enemy. The first is this. Uh, this is a plan where uh, it looks like defeat, right? All looks lost until the final moment of conquest. But if you were to look at this scene, you would swear Israel is done. But at the last minute, the last second, God shows his power. Uh, and that was very much true of the cross. Right? To those who watched Jesus hanging on the cross, they thought it was defeat. They thought they had lost. They had thought Satan had won. And, and I believe Satan himself believed that he had won victory over God when he put Jesus on the cross. And by the way, it was Satan behind it. It says that, that, that Satan put the idea into Judas' head to betray him. Satan was the one orchestrating this. It was Satan who wanted to kill Jesus. And I'm sure when he saw Jesus dying on the cross, he celebrated, yes, I have won. But then there was the resurrection. And in the resurrection it proved that the cross was not defeat. The cross was ultimately God's victory over Satan and over sin. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 puts it this way. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God has made alive together with him, that is with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. And by so doing, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. Jesus' death is atonement for our sins. It is his paying as a substitute our penalty for sin. But it is also his victory over Satan. God destroyed Satan at the cross. Um, Perhaps not in total annihilation, because Satan is still roaming. He still has power. But he was soundly defeated at the cross. and, And one day, he will be completely destroyed. 1 John 3, 8 puts it this way. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So what looked like total disaster, God made to be total victory. Second thing. Um, in, In the Red Sea... The means of salvation is at the same time the weapon of destruction. I can't think of another time in all of the Old Testament. In fact, I can't think of of any other case where the same thing that's used as a weapon to kill is also used as the means of salvation. The only other thing I can think of, and if you think of something, I would love to hear it, right? The only thing I can think of that, that even comes that comes close, it's a shadow of it, is the cross. Right? The cross is for those who believe the power of God into salvation, but for those who reject the cross, it is a rock of offense, a stumbling stone. In Luke 20, Jesus says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The cross is both salvation and it is judgment. You either receive Jesus and by faith you follow him and experience his amazing salvation through the cross or you reject what he has offered and you fall under his judgment. Jesus himself is both salvation and judge. Both the one who can give eternal life and the one who will judge and contend to eternal destruction. So how does this build up faith? Well, it says in verse 29, The people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Um, It was a grand scenic detour where Israel got to see this incredible display of God's power. That God uh, was was no match for the army of Egypt. They were soundly defeated. And can you imagine... You know, standing on the far side of the Red Sea, the sun's coming up. 
you have just been running for your life, convinced that at any moment an Egyptian spear is going to run you through. And all of a sudden you're standing on the edge of this quiet, placid lake with the waves lapping up against the shore, washing up dead bodies of Egyptian soldiers. Uh, And you're going, wow, that was cool. (laughs) That was cool, right? To see God's power so visibly displayed. Uh, Who wouldn't believe, right? Who wouldn't have more faith after experiencing that? And certainly they did. It did exactly what God desired. It, It built faith in them. It says that they feared the Lord and they believed him. Of course, we know this faith uh, is pretty rocky. It doesn't last forever. But it built up their faith. Uh, it, it gave them confidence to see what God could do and what God would do if they would follow him. So how do we, what does this do for us? Uh, well, one way this could work is that we get to see God part the Red Sea. Um, so far in my experience, that has not happened. Right? I haven't even seen him part the waters of a swimming, swimming pool, right? Um, chances are we are not going to see that kind of power encounter in our life. Maybe you will see God answer a prayer in a dramatic way. I hope so. Uh, but if we're not going to see God part Red Seas, then how do we build up faith? Well, I believe the answer is that we need to see with eyes of faith. Uh, God recorded these things not only for the faith of Israel, but for the faith of you and I. When we see what God did at things like the Red Sea, when we see how he worked through Israel throughout the Old Testament, when we see what he did through Jesus in the New Testament, when we see those things for real with our eyes, it strengthens our faith. But the deal is we need faith to see. And ultimately that faith comes from God. The faith you have to understand his power starts because God gives you the faith to see it. But once he gives you that gift, it's, it's our place and it's our choice to, to seek, to see and understand what God did so powerfully in the Bible. Unfortunately, uh, we live in a day and age where people too easily dismiss the miracles of Scripture. And they will say, God didn't really part the Red Sea. It was just some marshy swamp that Israel walked through and escaped. Right? If you don't have faith, you cannot see the power of what God does. If you do not have faith, you can't see what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Um, but we do have a role. We do have a choice to, to accept and believe that what the Bible says is true. All of it. Do not let naturalism or so-called science tell you, well, that's impossible. Well, of course it's impossible. But that's the God we worship. The God who can do anything. He is not limited. He can do anything that he chooses. Uh, These stories are of great value to us in building up our faith if we choose to study them and seek them out with the eyes of faith. So we need to see all that is in Scripture, and we need to see all that God is. It's interesting that they not only only believed God, but they feared God. Why did they fear God? 
Well, they just saw God wipe out an entire entire army. They just saw what God does to his enemies. Part of seeing with eyes of faith is not only believing that everything the Bible says is absolutely true, but everything it says about God is also absolutely true. God is a God of love. But he's also a God of terrible wrath and judgment who does not mess around with his enemies. He will one day conquer Satan and all the forces of darkness, all the powers that come against us, and he will judge every enemy. Maybe we don't really have very deep faith because we don't have very significant fear of what God can do if we do not follow him. I think Israel got the point, at least on that day. It didn't last long. Um, we are in a spiritual battle. Um, and, and the secret is we, we need God's help. Not only do we really need God's help, uh, we need God to fight the battle. I love, I love verse 21. It says, God told Moses to stretch out his hand, and so Moses did. He stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea. When Moses stretched out his hand, was there any power in his hand? Was there, was there anything in Moses that would enable him to divide the waters of the Red Sea? Was there anything in his staff that would make it possible for him to part a body of water? Of course not. Nothing in Moses could do that. God did it all. But I love that God chose to work in participation with Moses. That's how it is in our life. God wants to defeat every enemy. He wants to conquer Satan in your life, and he wants to use you to bash down the gates of hell. Is there anything in you that's going to accomplish this, or in me? Nothing, right? Nothing. We just have to obey. God says, I want you to go out. I want you to raise your hand. I want you to pray. I want you to proclaim the gospel. I want you to love people. And you have no power to do it. But don't worry. You just go out there and you raise your, stretch your hand out. I'll take care of the rest. That's what, that's what he promised to do. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.